Hi, my name is Michelle. I'm from the Nine O'Clock Service. Today I'm reading Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 to 13. The parable of the ten virgins. At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. All the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Well, let's pray. Our loving Father in heaven, thank you so much that we can get our teeth into these wonderful parables of Jesus and we're a bit confused, a bit shocked. We have our questions about the one today. But we ask, Heavenly Father, that all of that would only help us listen more carefully to Jesus' words and then to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm sure that you've never heard of Morgan Robertson, an unknown novelist of a 100 years ago who wrote books that nobody read. One book that nobody read was a novel written in 1898, a novel about the largest ship ever built. The ship was full of the rich and the easygoing, and one April night it hit an iceberg in the upper Atlantic and it sank. And it took all the rich and easygoing passengers on board down to the bottom of the ocean. Fourteen years later, in 1912, a British shipping company built a ship remarkably like the one that Morgan Robertson had invented. It was almost identical in its weight and in its length. Both vessels had three large propellers. Both could do 25 knots. Both could carry 3,000 passengers. And both had only a small number of lifeboats for the number of people on board. Well, that didn't matter because both boats were labelled unsinkable. On April the 10th, the real ship left Southampton on its maiden voyage for New York. April 10th, 1912, and she too hit an iceberg and sank. That ship, of course, was the Titanic. Incredibly, as if the coincidences weren't already defying belief, Robertson called his make-believe ship the Titan. And nobody read the book, because to people's minds, such a disaster was ludicrous the work of the most outrageous fiction. And yet on April the 10th, the people of the Titanic 
faced God. The ship scraped an iceberg, cut a 350-yard gash in its side, and it began to take in water. And yet even as people left their cabins when it hit their icebergs, they still didn't believe it could really go down. One lady asked the deckhand, Is this ship really unsinkable? Yes, lady, he answered. God himself could not sink this ship. One of the workmen who was working on the building, on building the ship, had written on one of the rivets on the ship, I defy God to sink this ship. What happened, said William Stead. Icebergs, said Frank Millet. Oh, that's nothing serious. I'll go back to my cabin and read. In another part of the ship, Mr Collier asked his wife what had happened. We've struck an iceberg, a big one, but there's nothing to worry about. The captain told me. The captain told me. Of course, I'm not the first preacher to begin a sermon with the sinking of the Titanic. And you can see why it's a favourite for preachers. It's a powerful parable of our world that portrays the arrogance of thinking ourselves invincible, the foolishness of not thinking we need to be ready, the blindness of not seeing that we too need to be saved. Without realising it, Morgan Robertson was a prophet. He prophetically warned the people of his generation of a disaster, a coming disaster. And if people had only had ears to hear and the need to get things into place, to be ready, lives would have been saved. 2,000 years ago, in Matthew chapter 25 and 4, Jesus Christ similarly gives a prophetic warning, one much more serious, of the coming of the Son of Man. In Matthew 24, the chapter before our reading today, the disciples looked at the temple, the largest, the most impressive, the most imposing solid, permanent building around. And not only did Jesus predict its destruction, he went on from that, an unthinkable judgment, which happened, to then speak of one that's still to come. Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power, and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So here is an event that is still to come, that's universal, it touches everyone, all the peoples of the earth, says Jesus, and it will impact everyone because all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming. When will it happen? No one knows. Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus goes on to say, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor even the Son himself, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, says Jesus. Sudden. Unexpected. Now, so how do you prepare for a disaster that's coming but you don't know exactly when? 
This week on the BBC News homepage, there was a video about a disaster that's predicted in the Japanese city of Tokyo. Japan sits on the, sits on the intersection of four major fault lines over the Earth's tectonic plates, and it's predicted that before 2050, there's a 70% chance of a major earthquake rocking the city of Tokyo. And so people have been getting ready. The buildings, we're told, we hope, are earthquake-proof. Schoolchildren and workers and families do earthquake drills to get ready for the earthquake that's coming. They all know what to do when they hear the siren. And that's coming who knows when. Well, according to Jesus, just like a, women, a woman's labour pains are a sign of the birth to come, that earthquake that's coming in Tokyo As great as that will be, that will only be a sign of another greater reality. It'll be like a, a sign of a greater convulsion, which will shake not only the earth, but the heavens as well. The coming of the Son of Man, the coming of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus continues that same discussion. He's standing there with his disciples and he tells his disciples now three parables on how to get ready, three parables on how to prepare for the coming of the Son of Man. Each parable has a different point, and it's not meant that there's three different ways to prepare and we can just pick and choose which parable suits us the best. No, three parables, each giving us a different essential angle on how each of us needs to prepare for the coming of the Son of Man. Over the next three Sundays, we're going to go through each of those three parables on how to get ready for Jesus' coming. The first parable is the one that uh, Michelle just read for us, the parable of the wise and foolish maidens. Now, our parable says the, sorry, our Bible say, says the parable of the ten virgins. I think the word virgin is a bit of a distraction. It simply means a young unmarried woman. In this case, there's ten They're probably in their teens. They've been invited to a wedding. Uh, let's call it 10 maidens uh, who are distinguished from one another only as either being wise or being foolish. So I think it's the parable of the wise and foolish maidens. Okay. The setting is a wedding or the moments leading up to the wedding. Now, weddings, of course, are normally happy events. So we, we hear this, the kingdom of heaven's like a, a wedding, you know. And we think, wonderful. Except that this parable has a tragic ending. And it focuses not on the celebration of the maidens who get to go inside, you know, their funny speeches at the, the top table or their, their great moves on the D floor, whatever it is. The parable focuses on the tragedy of the foolish maidens who are left outside. And that kind of disconnect between our happy expectations about a wedding and the way in which the parable ends That only heightens the tragedy, and it's meant to push us to say, what must I do so that I'm not one of those people on the outside? Okay. Having said that, when the parable was read, it raises questions. No doubt questions sprung to your mind as Michelle was reading it for us. Some are cultural. What's with this waiting for the bridegroom thing? What's... What's the need for lamps? And where's the bride? Okay. Some of them are emotive questions. 
Why can't the bridegroom just let them in? I mean, it's only a matter of oil. Oil's not such a big thing, isn't it? And if all the maidens were invited, well, surely he knows them. So why does he say, I don't know you? Isn't that unreasonably harsh? Well, all of those questions are important and Jesus wants us to think about them. So let's get into it. In the structure, we've got the bridegroom's delay. You've got the bridegroom's arrival. Then there's the difference between the wise and the foolish. And then there's the lesson in verse 13, which we'll try and learn from. First of all, it's the bridegroom's delay. Jesus said, at that time, when the Son of Man comes, the kingdom of heaven will be like a wedding scene. Now, in the Bible, both Jesus and John the Baptist describe Jesus as the bridegroom. Mark chapter 2, John chapter 3. The bridegroom, what an interesting term. This picks up on the whole idea in the Old Testament that God is a husband to his people. Then we've got in the New Testament, Christ, God incarnate. He is the bridegroom. God's people are the bride. And the moment we're all waiting for that that the Bible is pushing towards history is, is, is angling for is the moment when Jesus comes and takes his bride uh, to the wedding banquet. This is the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. So picking up on this wedding hope that we really have, Jesus says, when I come, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And we think, hang on, I don't understand this. <laughs> this is a different culture. What's going on? In first century Judea, if a couple were to be married, first of all, they would become engaged, more than engaged, formally betrothed. This had to happen before the village elders. It was a legal ceremony, much bigger than today's getting engaged. They're not married yet, but if you broke off a betrothal, that required a divorce, okay? That's what Joseph was thinking about for Mary when he realised Mary was pregnant uh, with Jesus. Um, he didn't realise she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. He couldn't speak to her. Why? Because they were only betrothed. They weren't living together. They had to keep separate, all right? Um, they were living apart. Anyway, so you'd get betrothed first, and then the invitations are issued. And then on the day, the bridegroom would leave his house, and he would come with his friends to the house of the bride, and he would meet her, and he would meet her friends, and then he would gather them, and then they would all go back to the bridegroom's house for the formal celebrations. And they would carry their lamps. The lamps was a sign that you were a genuine invitee. You weren't a gatecrasher when you arrived at the bridegroom's house. So these 10 maidens are at the bride's house and being friends of the bride, they all, we think, would have been invited. We think, where's the bride? Well, she's not mentioned. Why? Simply because she's not important to the story. The focus is on the maidens. Five of them are foolish, five of them are wise. It's not that the five foolish ones are presented as unbelieving. All of them, the wise and the foolish, they're all expecting the bridegroom to come. They all believe he'll come. They've all brought their lamps, right? So what's the difference between the wise and the foolish? Well, the, the wise bring extra oil for their lamps in a jar. The foolish ones don't. They've only got what little oil is in their lamps already. That's the difference. But that small difference soon counts because in verse 5, 
Jesus says the bridegroom was a long time in coming, a long time, much longer than the lifetime life cycle of a small lamp with a tiny bit of oil. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. Jesus says this in a parable. Have you noticed it? Because what's Jesus saying? He's saying the bridegroom may take a very long time to return. He's saying he may take a very long time to come. Now, we need to see this because it's very easy to read the New Testament and to think something different. You could read, for example, um, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 34, where Jesus speaks of his coming. He says, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And we might read that and think, well, Jesus obviously thought it was only a very short time within the lifetime of his disciples uh, before he would return. Now, I think that's a wrong interpretation because if you interpret verse 34 like that, when he says all these things, and you read it in context, he's referring back to the birth pains in verses 7 and 8. That's where that phrase, these things, are mentioned. Even if we don't get that sense from the New Testament, it's nevertheless easy for us to think, you know, it's been so long, you know, he should have come by now. And it's very easy for us to think he'll never come at all. So it's worthwhile seeing that Jesus himself says in chapter 24, verse 36, well, first of all, he doesn't know the day or hour, only the father does. And now in chapter 25, verse 5, the bridegroom could indeed take a very, very long time, right? So the fact that we've been waiting, it's not a surprise to Jesus. Jesus spoke about it. He wanted to get us ready. You could also fall into the opposite problem of thinking he's taking so long, he's probably not coming back for ages and then slacken off. Okay, that's the very thought that Jesus warns us against at the end of chapter 24, verse 48. In the wicked servant who says to himself, my master's staying away a long time, and then he begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. Well, that person comes to a very nasty end. So Jesus has addressed both views. There's the foolish maidens who thought the bridegroom would come immediately. There's the wicked servant who thinks his master will never come. Both are foolish. Why? Because chapter 24, verse 42, you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Chapter 24, verse 44, the Son of Man will come at an, hour, at an hour when you do not expect him. Verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. Three times Jesus is labouring the point. Why does he labour the point? Because he knows us. He knows how easily we'll lapse into one of these two extremes of either thinking he'd come soon and then being disappointed and not ready or coming so far in the future that we think it doesn't matter. Both are foolish because look now at verse 6 in chapter 25. The maidens are asleep, but at midnight the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. It's time, right? It's time. They've been asleep, but now he's come. And what matters is are they ready? Well, are they ready? All the virgins woke up, they trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. Five of them don't have enough oil. They're not ready. The others are ready, but they don't have enough to go round. 
There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, you go and buy some. Well, while they're on their way to buy the oil, tragedy for them, the bridegroom arrives. The virgins who are ready go in with him to the wedding banquet. And then we're told, and the door was shut. It sounds very final, doesn't it? It is. Because the outcome can't be more extreme and different. Later we read, the others also came, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But the bridegroom replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Now, we ask, why so harsh? Couldn't he just let them in? Well, would you let gate crashes into your wedding? We think, hang on, but they were invited. <laughs> they were invited. Well, we assume so. Certainly they would have been known to the bride. But let's think, what if the bridegroom really was speaking the truth? After all, he does say, truly, I tell you. So we assume when he says, I don't know you. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's say he's telling the truth, which means he doesn't let them in because they really are strangers to him. Now, this troubles us because we think, hang on, weren't they invited? Weren't they expecting the bridegroom to come? They're, I mean, in the application of the parable, they're Christians, aren't they? Aren't they churchgoers? Aren't they believers? Well, if we're troubled, we're meant to be. And the parable has landed a punch. And that makes us ready to hear the lesson. Are you ready? These words come from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. Verse 13, he says, therefore, watch. Keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. And he's right, isn't he? I mean, we don't know the day or hour when Jesus will return. None of us know. Maybe you're the type who tends not to think about it because he's been away such a long time. Well, I find myself like that. What's Jesus' lesson? Jesus' word to you. He says, keep watch. Keep watch. What does that mean? Does it mean you can't ever go asleep? You've got to kind of prop your eyelids open? No. All the virgins fell asleep, including the wise, and they weren't reprimanded for falling asleep. Um, it's not about whether people are awake or asleep. It's about whether people are wise or foolish. Okay, we fall asleep <laughs> as a biological reaction uh, to our being tired. It happens every single day. Keeping watch isn't about being sleep deprived. What's it, what's it about? Last point, learning from the wise and the foolish maidens. First of all, whatever it is, we're meant to see that the difference between the wise and the foolish maidens is not transferable and it's not able to be shared. The wise maidens couldn't share what they had with the foolish ones. Uh, whatever this is talking about, it's something that each of us is individually responsible for, for ourselves. This is something our parents can't do for us, our kids can't do for us, um, our spouse can't do for us, neither can our church pastor or our home group leader or even our friend. This is something that's on each of us. It's on me, for me, it's on you, for you. So what is it? Is it the oil? No, it's not the oil. <laughs> what did the wise maidens do that the foolish maidens didn't? What the wise ones did 
is that they planned for the possibility of a long delay. In other words, they weren't superficial. They, they set their eyes on the bridegroom's coming. That was the big thing, right? And they were determined in their minds that they would be with him. They would be ready. If all their hopes weren't immediately going to be fulfilled, they made plans that whenever he'd come, they'd be ready, right? Short time or long. So in other words, they didn't just sort of go, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Let's just go. No, no, no. It filled their mind and they made plans. What's this talking about? Something that only you can do for yourself, getting ready for the long haul. What's it talking about? It's talking about your own spiritual disciplines, feeding your soul so that your enthusiasm won't wane should you have to wait 10 years or 20 years or 60 or 70 years. Okay, what is this talking about? It's talking about, well, the bread and butter disciplines, you know, your Bible reading, your prayer life, your actively serve, active service of others, your, your sharing of the faith, your regular repentance of sin, um, being thankful and disciplining yourself to be thankful, reflecting deeply on the scriptures, growing in maturity. These are things that only you can do for yourself. And as pastor, I can say, you know, we can try as much as we can to put things in place so that you can grow. But I, I have no control over what you'll do with this sermon. I don't know whether you're just going to forget it as soon as it finishes. I have no control of whether you're going to open the Bible afterwards, maybe tonight, and read the passage again and think deeply about it and having thought about it, then pray about it and resolve to put it into practice. I have no control over these things, but you do and I do for me. Okay. This is something that can't be done for you. It, a person who does these things is like, in the parable of the sower, they're like the good soil. They're not like the shallow soil or the, the seed with weeds in it, okay? Here are people who are known by Jesus because they have been truly saved by, by him. His death is effective for them. His spirit is at work in their life. They are cooperating with the spirit, and it comes out in a life a lifetime of relationship with him in walking with him. The wise maidens plan for a possibility of a long delay, okay? That's the first thing to learn. Secondly, the second aspect of wisdom is that the wise maidens were constantly ready. They were always prepared for whenever he came. Even when they were asleep, they were ready. So they didn't just say, um, we'll get ready for when he comes way in the future. No, no, no. They got ready for when he comes way in the future, but they were constantly ready because they didn't know when he would come. They were constantly ready. They didn't say he's taking a long time, so let's live our lives now as if he's never going to come, right? And they didn't say he should have come by now and slacken off. There, there was a mindset of constant readiness, right? So let me ask you this question. Right now, today, now, are you ready for the Lord Jesus Christ to return? Are you personally ready? Is your life in order? Have you repented of your sins? Is your walk with him close? Uh, do you know him? Okay. Uh, does he know you? 
What would it mean for us to make ourselves ready? Well, first of all, you'd have stopped turning your back on him and you'll have turned to him and you've confessed to your sin and you'll have made him your Lord and your Saviour. You won't have ignored him. Okay, you've faced him and you've come to him and you're in relationship with him. Secondly, you'll strive to keep your conscience clean. That is, there won't be any conscious sin that you've been playing with that you haven't done anything about or repented of. Um, To be constantly ready means you're evaluating your life under his lordship and you're saying, I want to be clean before you. Okay, so that when he comes, as far as you know, you can look him in the eye without wanting to hide. Thirdly, it means that you'll be walking in relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus won't just be the person you hear about on Sunday. He won't be the person that you that you hear other people singing about. Okay, he'll be in your conscious awareness every day. You'll pray to God through him. You'll strive to follow him as your Lord. You'll trust him deeply as your saviour. You'll do it every day. Um, his death over the years will become more and more precious to you. His resurrection will mean more for you every year that you live because you're growing in hope. You'll know him. The relationship will be real so that when he comes, it will be the moment that you've been waiting for. It won't be a moment you're terrified of. And whatever surprises there'll be on that day, they will be wonderful surprises. They won't be tragic because you'll know him and because he'll know you. Well, that's Jesus' first word to us. Cultivate your spiritual disciplines. Get yourself right in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it. Invest in it. And be prepared for him to come a long time away or today. Be constantly ready. Be constantly ready. Strive to keep your soul pure. Let's pray. And if this has unsettled you, I should first of all say, please get in touch this week. Let's have a chat. But let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this wonderful word, essential word of Jesus. Uh, The first word, the first way to get ready, which is to get ourselves right with you and to be right with you and to grow in our relationship. I pray that would be true of everyone listening to this right now. We pray it so that when Jesus comes, we would be found in good shape and we would be accepted by him because he knows us and we know him. In Jesus' name, give us this wisdom. Amen.